Hi, all. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to share a couple of comments from our listeners about last week's episode. Well, they were all great. So if we don't share yours, please don't be angry with us. Vinny Teresa, the Walt Disney of the Mafia. And Vinny's informant code was actually BSA for Bullshit Artists. Thanks for all the comments. As always, I'm a little bummed out that David seems to have ditched us. If you're listening, David, let us know. We miss your feedback. Indeed. Okay, time for Laura's favorite person to gripe about, Frankie Salemi. I'm going to try to control my outburst today. I banged out a hundred swings and I chomped on a top of the round steak that was as tough as shoe leather to wear me down a bit. I also read a recent post on Matt of Boston's blog. Finally, after 19 years, someone besides us has called out Frankie on his bullshit story about being dressed as a rabbi and shooting Punchy McLaughlin at the Beth Israel Hospital at last. But Matt should check out who actually shot Jimmy Flemmy in the leg. Jimmy's wife shot him because Jimmy killed Iggy Lowry, who she was having an affair with. Check the timeline. Iggy was killed and dumped, then discovered in the wee hours of September 3rd. Later that evening, Jimmy was shot after he told his wife what he had done. She was a lousy shot and she clipped him in the leg. He certainly couldn't let the law know that his wife put a bullet in him because he just killed her bisexual lover who was his former jailmate. Jimmy did share that story with Barboza. Barboza being the gossip that he was repeated the story to others including the feds but left out Jimmy's name. No matter what Barboza had a soft spot and some loyalty for Jimmy. Well that's for sure. Who knows what trashiness was going on between all of them. And by the way you don't seem to be any calmer. Hey, we'll see. Back to today's topic. In addition to Frankie Salemi, his arrest and trial, we'll also be looking at Detective Billy Stewart's court case and how it fits with Frankie's troubles. Frankie's partner in crime and lies, Stevie Flemmy, and the man who testified against Frankie, Bobby Dadiecko. And we'll be taking another look at attorney John Fitzgerald and the possible reasons beyond the standard excuse as to why he was nearly killed by the car bomb planted in Joe Barboza's Batmobile. And his drunken bender with colleague F. Lee Bailey. Well, we definitely can't leave that out. But to begin with, we need to go back to the first week of September in 1969 when FBI Special Agent H. Paul Rico met with Frankie Salemi and Stevie Flemmy on Revere Beach to warn them to get out of town and take it on the lam because of a set of pending indictments. Let's relay that event from how Frankie recalled it during his 2003 Senate testimony. You got it. An opportunity to prove to our listeners that I can remain calm while discussing Frankie. Here we go. Frankie stated that he received a phone call from Stevie Flemmy before dawn. Stevie told him he had something very important to tell him and that Frankie should pick Stevie up at his home, which at the time was in Milton, Mass. Frankie got in his car and rushed to Stevie's house. Upon arriving, Stevie hopped in the car and told Frankie they needed to go meet Rico on Revere Beach about some indictments that were being handed down. Well, I've got a question. Was Rico just hanging on the beach all night waiting for those two, or was there a set meeting time? Hey, maybe he was having a lobster roll and fries at Kelly's. According to Frankie's tale, Stevie and Rico had some signaling methods set up. Supposedly, Rico would call Stevie and say it was Jack from South Boston. That meant they were to meet at Revere Beach. Frankie said he didn't know about it at the time, but years later, it came out at the hearings. 
Yeah, okay. Highly likely that's another lie, like just about everything else in his testimony. He'd either read it somewhere or Frankie knew about it all along because he was an informant too. We'll get to why I think he was cut as a CI later. Frankie said when Rico arrived at the beach, he pulled in front of their car and another agent who was definitely not Dennis Condon stepped out of the vehicle along with Rico. In fact, it sounded like the other agent was Richie's handler, Gerard Komen. I'm trying to imagine why Rico would bring Gerard on an assignment that broke every rule in the book, plus the new rules he was under, since his life was allegedly under threat. Rico and Richie had already put the fear of God into Gerard, so maybe he knew Gerard wouldn't squeal. <laughs> Most likely it was just to continue to torment Coleman. As Nina mentioned, Rico was under a direct order from J. Edgar Hoover not to meet with CIs unless he had a backup team consisting of at least two other agents because of the rib room plot to kill him. The alleged plot, which we now know was a scam to get Rico out of Boston and to Miami, but only Richie and Rico knew that. Anyway, since Rico wasn't there in an official capacity, he certainly couldn't drag a team of agents along. Supposedly, Frankie backed up out of sight because he didn't want the other agent to see him because he didn't know him. Rico walked over to the two men and explained about the pending indictments and said that they needed to get out of town. They both asked how serious it was. Frankie said he couldn't recall exactly what Rico said, but it was about the Bennett murder and the car bombing of Fitzgerald. The duo heeded the advice, scooped up Peter Poulos, and hit the road. And as Rico had warned, the first indictments were handed down on September 11, 1969. Frankie, Stevie, Poulos, Sonny Shields, Robert Dadiecko, and the late Richie Grasso were named as the suspected killers of William Bennett. Dadiecko, who was being held in protective custody, was one of the witnesses who testified in front of the grand jury earlier that morning. Frank, Stevie, and Sonny were hit with murder and conspiracy charges, and Poulos only with conspiracy. Another month passed before the second set of indictments were handed down. On October 10th, indictments were returned, charging Stevie and Frankie with the January 1968 car bombing of Joe Barboza's attorney, John Fitzgerald. For more about that, listen to our New Year bonus episode on Dottie Barshard, our episode The Defense Never Rests, and our episode about Joe Barboza. That same day, Peter Poulos's body was found in the Nevada desert, but he would not be officially identified until the following February. Not by the FBI, but rather a Boston police officer who was a specialist in matching fingerprints. Had the FBI released the prints to other law enforcement agencies, Poulos's remains would have been identified within days of their discovery. But the feds had to have known that it was Poulos and were protecting their golden boy, Stevie Fleming, and despite what Frankie claimed, most likely him too. We've both read through Frankie's testimony several times, and as we've said here and in other episodes, it's clear that just about every word out of his mouth was a lie. To top it off, Durham and Wilson let him get away with it. And at times it was as if they were leading him, I mean, guiding him and coaxing him through his testimony. No question. Back to the road trip. I think Stevie Fleming began panicking the moment the three of them started on their journey. He was probably stopping to call Rico every time he spotted a payphone. 
Poulos was likely having doubts about his fellow Lannisters, and with Stevie calling the mothership every five miles, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what was really going on. A panicked Flemmy and a doubting Poulos were doomed from the start. What do you think was going to happen? And let's be honest, Frankie was not one to instill confidence in someone either. Talk about a trifecta, and remember that Stevie had been under psychiatric care for anxiety and who knows what else. Can't you just picture Frankie and Stevie bickering and playing the blame game as they drove through the desert? It's going to be great on Netflix. Enough to rival The Sopranos. Okay, back to reality. My first doubt or question is Frankie's story that they went on, went one way and Stevie and Peter another after L.A. Remember, Nevada still has a death penalty. Frankie couldn't cop to being present in Poulos' murder. Despite the deal he made with the feds, Nevada could have chosen to charge Frankie with first-degree murder. Stevie also never pled out in Nevada, and Poulos' murder technically remains unsolved. Talk about a travesty. I want to briefly cover Stevie's much later testimony about Poulos. On the stand, Flemmy said that at some point, Salemi left, but he was still calling the shots. Prosecutor Fred Wyshack, what happened to Peter Poulos? Stephen Flemmy, he was murdered. By who? By me. Frank insisted because he was part of the bombing. You shot him? Yes. Well, what did you do with his body? I dumped him by the side of the road and left him there. How was Salemi calling the shots if he wasn't there? It wasn't like they had cell phones back in those days. They were in the middle of the fucking desert. Why do you always have to be so nitpicky? Just my nature, I guess. We'll get back to Frankie's time on the run in a bit. As for Stevie, there'll be no shortage of him this season and next. The duo may have been MIA, but the prosecution of the Billy Bennett murder conspirators carried on. Wimpy Bennett and Jimmy and Stevie Flemmy's favorite cop and handler, Detective Billy Stewart, was indicted in February of 1970 for being an accessory after the fact in Billy Bennett's December 1967 murder. That same day, he was relieved of his duty as a cop. He had been a member of the BPD for 19 years. Stewart pleaded innocent to the charges two days later, and a trial date was set for April 7th. At Stewart's trial, an alleged associate of the Bennetts testified that they were paying Billy Stewart $50 a week, but the dates he gave were after both Walter and Wimpy had already disappeared. There was also a monthly payment envelope that had the initials BM on it, probably another local cop since the Bennetts were not involved with the feds as CIs. At the trial, Robert Dadiecko testified that there were six men involved in the plot to kill Billy Bennett, the late Dickie Grosso, and the five men who had been indicted back in September of 1969. Robert claimed that Dickie Grosso was Billy Bennett's bodyguard and therefore was the only man who could get close to him, and Sonny Shields was the trigger man. Things went sideways when Billy Bennett saw the gun and tried to escape from the car, and that's how he fell out into the snowbank. Stevie Fleming and Frankie were in a second car to serve as a getaway vehicle for Grosso, Dadiecko, and Shields. But instead, they were trying to retrieve the now-deceased Billy Bennett before being scared off by a taxi driver. In typical Flemmy fashion, Stevie called up Billy Stewart to save him, and as usual, Stewart came running. He drove them back to the murder scene and helped them move the abandoned getaway car, which was still running with the then-dead Grosso in it. Grosso had panicked after Billy Bennett had fallen from the car and his cohort saw fit to kill him. Another perfect Netflix scene. I'm trying not to laugh. It's just so great. <laughs> <sighs> it's awful, really. Well, it's also awful, but... 
On April 25th, Billy Stewart took the stand in his own defense. In court, he identified Robert Dadiego as Grasso's real killer. Stewart said he knew Dadiego because he had arrested him in 1962 for a parole violation. As we recounted last week, Dadiego had been arrested after Vinny Teresa gave him up in 1958. But Stewart stated that he had never even seen Sonny Shields until the first day of the trial. That may or may not have been true since Sonny had a criminal record dating back to when he was a juvie and was sent to Shirley. He escaped from there with three other boys in 1953 and made it all the way to Albany, New York in a stolen car. The following year, Sonny was picked up again while attempting to commit a B&E on Blue Hill Ave. He'd climbed in through a skylight using a rope. His accomplice escaped the same way the two men had gotten in before the cops arrived. We'll get more into Sonny and his background in future episodes. Stewart claimed that he had been shocked to hear that Billy Bennett had been murdered. He did concede, however, that the Bennetts had all been his informants, but he stated that he had never revealed his sources, even to his bosses. Quote, even the FBI does not reveal the names of informers. Under cross-examination, he claimed that he did not have a quid pro quo relationship with his informants, which was an outright lie given how much running he'd had to do for Jimmy Flemmy over the years. From rescuing Jimmy after Maureen Flemmy shot him in the leg to moving Margaret Sylvester's corpse after Jimmy got high and botched the disposal job. Hugh Shields and Billy Stewart were acquitted on April 30th. Shields was sent back to Walpole on a parole violation charge, but Billy Stewart was free to go about his business. In an interview with the press, he lambasted the prosecution and alleged that the investigation into Billy Bennett's murder had been sloppy because Dadiecko had turned prosecution witness so quickly after the indictments. Technically, the only reason the feds got the indictments was because of Dadiecko's bogus testimony, and we've seen how well that worked for the feds. Just look at the Teddy Deegan murder trial, for instance. In the meantime, Frankie and Stevie were still nowhere to be found. In May of 1972, Edward Harrington, Special Justice Department attorney and the head of New England Task Force, told the press that they had represented 10 federal investigative agencies. He pointed out the 24 convictions attributed to Vinnie Teresa's testimony and, of course, Jack Kelly's testimony in the Maffeo Malay murder trial and the 68 Brinks heist case. And he praised Daddy Echo's cooperation, without which the authorities would not have obtained indictments against Frankie and Stevie. You left out Dennis Raimondi, but we'll get back to him in another episode. Let's fast forward seven months later to Frankie's apprehension on December 14th. By none other than FBI Special Agent John Connolly. The magic part is that Connolly just happened to be walking by when he spotted Frankie, who at that point had been on the lam for over three years. There's no way he was in New York City that entire time. The apartment he was living in had been rented in September of that year under the name of Jules Seelig, along with his YMCA membership that began that same month. I am not basing my theory only on that, but I do feel that he was with Stevie up to the end of August, most likely in Canada. I tend to agree with you. We also have the added wrinkle of Louis Minocchio possibly having been roommates with Frankie in NYC. As for the identity Frankie had taken up, Jules Selig, that poor man, he had been swimming at the L Street Beach in the summer of 1968. Fond memories of the L Street brownies. Who eats brownies at the beach? They're not brownies you eat. The brownies are swimmers who are famous for their New Year's Day plunge in the Atlantic. What a bunch of weirdos. You're just jealous. 
Anyhow, while Jules was changing in the bathhouse, someone nicked his wallet, and that's how Frankie became the curator of a Wichita, Kansas art museum. That poor man and his mother, the feds, haunted them for nearly a year. Well, the feds were convinced that there were cryptograms hidden in the notes found in Frankie's apartment, but of course they never could decode any secret messages. Secret messages? I Really, I can't. It's unclear exactly how Frankie and Louie hooked up once they were on the run. Billy Candelmo seems to have been the likely matchmaker. No matter how it happened, they certainly were an odd couple. Well, I don't doubt that Louis was in, in NYC a large portion of the time, but like you, I have my doubts about their roommate status. According to the FBI report on Frankie's apprehension, he had been staying with Louis Minacchio. This was supposedly how the feds discovered Louis' assumed identity of Richard Tamilia, who would event, which would eventually lead them to the ski slopes of Chamonix three months later. In the same FBI report also noted that the New York field office had been looking for the Lannisters in the area of Central Park West for six weeks. They weren't scouring the neighborhood, but only checking in a few times a week in hopes of catching the men off guard. They continued the practice for another week after Frankie was arrested by John Connolly in the hopes of apprehending Louie. The implication of that then to me is that Stevie had a general idea of where Frankie was located, but not an exact address. He passed the information on to Rico, who then disseminated it to Connolly. I was thinking more along the lines that Rico had given a heads up to Louis and Frankie. Louis was told to get lost because they couldn't risk Louis's return and the convictions of Raymond Patriarca, Rudy Schiara, Pro Lerner, and the others being overturned. Rhode Island State Attorney General Israel didn't want Louis back. After Louis was found in Chamonix, he went, went missing once again. Listen to the third episode of the season for more on that. I think Rico convinced Frankie to allow him himself to get caught and save his ever important street cred. Well, I think Frankie and Stevie were almost certainly in contact with one another because a search of the apartment revealed papers with phone numbers from Montreal and Western Quebec. I'm convinced that Stevie and Rico gave up Frankie's location and hung him out to dry. They sacrificed Frankie for Stevie. Why? Maybe because Stevie was easier to manipulate. And Frankie must have known what they had done, and that's why he said some of the things he did three decades later in his Senate testimony. It was his revenge on Rico and Stevie. Also in the apartment were the 13 volumes of transcripts from Hugh Shields' trial. Oh, gee. And where do you think Frankie got 13 volumes of trial transcripts from? It wasn't like he submitted a fucking FOIA request for those. He got them from Rico. And I believe that the reason Frankie had to get spanked was because of his outspokenness over the Teddy Deegan murder case. I want to make clear that this is Frankie's recollection that I'm quoting here, but others who knew Frankie at that time confirmed that he was upset over the verdicts that were handed down. To be fair, everyone except the feds and the prosecutors were upset. Everyone knew Barboza and Jimmy Fleming killed Teddy, and everyone knew that the feds knew and suborned Barboza's perjury on the stand. Okay, off of my mini tirade, here's what Frankie claimed. After the convictions were handed down in the Deegan case, Rico and Condon came into the shop like they usually did. Condon was elated over their success and said, I wonder how Louis Greco likes it on death row. How can you say that, Dennis? You're a knight of Columbus. You're a holy name society, Frankie replied. Well, if you're so smart and you think you know so much, why don't you get on the stand and testify? Denny shot back. 
Dennis, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to believe me? I'll get on the stand if you do. You won't get by St. Peter at the gate. You can't. You broke one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You can't get by him, Dennis. Frank <laughs> continued, once I hit the sore spot of the religious aspect with him, then he really blew his top. All right. Now, I believe that recollection of the exchange was hyperbolic, to say the least, but I do believe that that was enough of a slight to earn Frankie a stretch in the can. Well, I agree, but there were feds who confirmed Frankie's ire over the convictions. According to an FBI memorandum written by Special Agent Raymond Ball on August 2nd, 1968, Salemi was very vocal in his disgust of the verdict. He stated that the DA, Garrett Byrne, was trying to make an empire for himself and that something should be done about Fitzgerald, saying it was too bad they hadn't finished him in the car bombing. Salemi said that the DA's office had lied, the witnesses in the trial had lied, and also the feds had lied, and the only ones that did not lie were the defendants. Exactly. And don't worry, Fitzgerald had his chance to try to torment Frankie during the trial. Frankie was arraigned in New York before being extradited to Boston. Bail was set at a half a million dollars. When he finally made it back to Boston, Frankie was arraigned in Suffolk County Superior Court on December 19th and held without bail. Joe Bolero represented him at the arraignment, during which the prosecutor announced that Frankie was also indicted for the car bombing of Fitzgerald. The DA's office would never try Frankie or Stevie for William Bennett's murder. Instead, they chose to pursue the Fitzgerald car bombing charges. The car bombing trial finally began on June 11, 1973, with jury selection. By now, Frankie was being defended by F. Lee Bailey. The assistant DA was Kevin Mulvey, and the judge was Roger Donahue. The jury was to be sequestered for the duration of the trial. I want to note that Spike O'Toole was killed two months before the trial commenced. How convenient. The highlight of the trial was John Fitzgerald's testimony. He recounted the events leading up to the attack. According to him, he had been at his office in Everett cleaning out his desk since he and Al Farisi were in the process of dissolving their law partnership. He reported to the FBI before heading out to Barboza's Batmobile. Why was he reporting to the FBI? I assume it was because his client Barboza had flipped. Yeah, I'm suspicious of everyone. I think we should go over the sequence of events again for people since the Barboza episode was so long ago. I'm planning on doing that right now as part of Bar Fitzgerald's testimony. At 5.15 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th, 1968, Fitzgerald left work and walked about a block behind the law office in Everett to where he had parked Barboza's black and gold car. He sat in the vehicle but started it before he closed the door. Had the door been closed, he most likely would have been killed. He testified that his first response was to demand that Special Agent Rico be contacted. A local Everett cop rode with him to the hospital. Fitzgerald handed over 38 that he had in his hip pocket and a 25 from his jacket pocket. He stated he had started carrying about six months prior. Fitzgerald, who was conscious from the time of the explosion until he was under anesthesia, demanded that Rico and Condon come to see him, and they did. An FBI 302 from November of 67 recounted a meeting Fitzgerald had with agents Rico and Welby. He told them that Al Farisi was planning to testify against his former client Barboza, claiming that Al had a letter from Barboza to Chico Amico detailing the mafia's activities. Farisi also had 3x5 cards detailing interviews he had had with Barboza. 
Fitzgerald recounted a recent incident that had taken place at his office where Guy Frazee had threatened his secretary, saying that he had killed before and would kill again. The mafia attorney claimed it was over income tax problems Frazee was having. As a result of these threats, Fitzgerald said he went looking for Peter Lamoni because Frizee was Lamoni's partner and he hoped Lamoni would take care of it. Lamoni promised to tell Frizee to lay off. That is the first time I heard that Guy Frizee was partners with Lamoni. I wonder if any of our listeners know. Since Frizee was with Barboza, it sounds to me like the story was planted to make Lamoni look connected to Barboza to reaffirm Barboza's Deegan tale, but maybe I'm off. Fitzgerald claimed that in early November of 67, Larry Bioni called him and asked for a meeting. The attorney agreed to meet Bioni at the Howard Johnson's on Route 1 in Dedham. I had no idea there was a Hojo's on Route 1 in Dedham, but that was before my time. Fitzgerald supposedly went alone and Bioni arrived with Phil Wagenheim, but Phil remained in the car. Bioni was worried that Barboza was going to flip on everyone and asked Fitzgerald for help, but Fitzgerald claimed that he had no influence over Barboza. Bioni then offered to pay Fitzgerald for all of the information he could get on Barboza, but Fitzgerald claimed that he refused the offer. Well, you know, he was so ethical. <laughs> sure, he was a regular Boy Scout. Fitzgerald then told Special Agents Rico and Welby that shortly after that meeting, Dottie Barshard received an anonymous phone call threatening her and her children if she didn't stop seeing Fitzgerald. His wife had also gotten a phone call about his affair with Dottie. He also told the feds that when he was checking around as to who had made the phone calls to his wife and to Dorothy, quote, the office, meaning the mafia, and tried had tried to lead him to believe that it was Spike O'Toole's friends, but that he had checked with O'Toole and Spike had told him that it was not him. Then Fitzgerald dropped another bombshell on the feds. The mafia had said they'd kill Spike O'Toole, who was still locked up at Concord for harboring Georgie McLaughlin, if Fitzgerald agreed to fix Barboza's testimony for them. When Rico asked for the name of the person who had told Fitzgerald that, he refused to answer, saying only, quote, I'm not going to divulge the identity of this person, but I have given the identity of this party to Jimmy O'Toole, and he'll probably be in trouble when O'Toole comes out of jail, unquote. He also claimed that he had asked Spike about the threatening phone calls and O'Toole assured him again that it wasn't him or his associates. Well, I have questions about what Dorothy was really feeding to the feds about these guys. I'd like to write Dorothy's story someday, still trying to find out if she's still kicking. Back to Fitzgerald's testimony. He offered to show the jury his injuries, but Bailey objected. He told the jury that the mob was out to get him and his client, Barboza. During Frankie's Senate testimony three decades later, he claimed that he had been asked to take care of Fitzgerald by Providence, i.e. Raymond Patriarca, and he had agreed since Fitzgerald was working with Barboza against the Mafia. According to his story, after scoping out the situation, Frankie decided it was doable since Fitzgerald was pretty lax with his personal safety. Here's where the story loses its credibility for me. After the preliminary work was done, Frankie testifi testified that Larry Bioni intervened and said that they changed their minds and wanted to use a car bomb. At that point, Salemi claimed that he dropped out, but Stevie stayed on and worked with Larry to plant the bomb. Larry and Stevie working that close together seems highly unlikely. Longtime listeners might recall that Stevie Fleming had a grudge against Bioni going back to at least 1966. Fleming would regularly complain to Rico about Bioni and said he planned to kill him, but he wanted to make it look like it was someone else's doing. 
Well, he didn't have the guts to do him in, so instead, even Stevie eventually opted to take his revenge on Bayoni by using his power as a top echelon informant. More on that later in the season. Okay, back to the trial and the next prosecution witness, Robert Dadiecko. He told the court that Frankie had approached him just a few weeks before the attack and had asked him for help going after Fitzgerald. Frankie would later claim that Dadiecko overheard a conversation between him, Stevie, Howie, and Joe Mack about killing Fitzgerald to make an example of him. After it all went sideways, Dadiecko claimed that Frankie had said to him, quote, it's a real mess. It didn't go as I wanted it to. Don't say anything anything about it, unquote. Because it was Winter Hill or whatever label was slapped on them back in those days. If it wasn't for the feds propping them up and backing them up, they would have faded off into the sunset. People bicker about who was the founding father of Winter Hill. Was it Joe Mack, Buddy McLean, Howie Winter, Whitey Bulger, Stevie Flemmy? It was more Rico than any of them. It was the feds' creation to wipe out the mafia. I still cannot figure out what sort of self-loathing the Flemmies suffered from. I'm referring to their ethnicity. Anyhow, when the ADA asked Adieko who had ordered the hit, Robert answered Larry Bayomi. The newspaper wrote the last name B-I-O-M-M-I, but obviously he meant Bayoni. Echo did not elaborate, and the ADA dropped that line of questioning. Echo also testified that he had seen Frankie practice wiring dynamite to a car in a garage on Marshall Street in Somerville. In addition, Echo claimed that he had been the one to drive Frankie to Fitzgerald's office in Everett so that he could wire Barboza's car. He said he watched as Frankie did, quote, something under the engine hood, unquote. Both sides rested on June 15th. They made their closing arguments and the case was sent to the jury for deliberations. Frankie was found guilty on two counts, convicting him of armed assault with intent to murder and battery by means of a dangerous weapon. Sentencing was scheduled for the following week at Bailey's request. On the day of Frankie's sentencing at the ADA's request, the judge sentenced Frankie to 19 to 20 years on the first count and 9 to 10 on the second count for a total of 28 to 30 years. An appeal was filed on Frankie's behalf and a motion for a new trial just two days later. It's interesting that it was consecutive and not concurrent. I know we've seen that recently. There was another case that we were just looking at from one of, uh, was Vinnie Teresa. I think yeah. That it was. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Okay. Prison didn't keep Frankie out of trouble. Just two months after his conviction, he was charged with bribing a corrections officer to smuggle in food, and I'm jealous of the shopping list. Quote, he handed me two regular supermarket bags of food in the receiving room. There was provolone cheese, anchovies, Italian bread, peppers, tuna fish, and squid. I must have stunk in his cell. <laughs> yeah. In late April of 1974, Joe Bolero filed a motion to have the Billy Bennett murder charge against Frankie dropped. The judge agreed since the feds had lost Robert Didiecko about six months prior and had no case without his testimony. This would not be the last time that they would lose Robert. And like magic, two weeks later, Stevie Flemmy surrendered to the police at his attorney's office. He pleaded innocent in Suffolk County Superior Court to the Billy Bennett murder charge and the judge ordered him held on $100,000 bail. A bail reduction hearing was set for the end of the month. The following day, Flemmy appeared in court in Middlesex County for his arraignment on the Fitzgerald car bombing charges. In November, the Billy Bennett murder charges against Stevie were dropped after the assistant district attorney informed him that Didi Echo was still missing. 
Frankie's appeals didn't go as well. The Massachusetts Appeals Court upheld Frankie's conviction in March of 75, but in April of 78, attorney Harvey Brower gave it one more shot. Brower attempted to prove that Fitzgerald had paid F. Lee Bailey a retainer of $10,000. The money was to go to Dottie Barshard if Spike O'Toole killed him. If Fitzgerald killed Spike first, the money was to be used to defend Fitzgerald on murder charges. Fitzgerald, of course, denied this, though he did concede on the stand that he had been having an affair with Dottie. A long-time affair. They'd been seeing one another since at least 1962. Goodness, Dorothy was a busy girl. On the stand, Fitzgerald claimed that he told Farisi that the mob planned to kill him and pin it on Spike. Quote, I told Al and I gave him the names and I said, Al, I'm going to get hit. And I named them and I said, after it's over, they'll say Jimmy O'Toole did it, unquote. Fitzgerald's testimony took so long, Al Farisi, who had been called on by Frankie's lawyer to take the stand, was told he had to come back the following day. Farisi hadn't wanted to testify in the first place. He yelled at Bauer, I'm not coming back. You'll get 15 judges to drag me back here. Brower pressed Fitzgerald about his drunken bender with F. Lee Bailey after the two had imbibed a little too much Irish whiskey. That evening, Fitzgerald told Bailey about the threats made against him. On the stand, Fitzgerald said he didn't trust Bailey as he was, quote, an organized crime lawyer, unquote. Chutzpah on that man. This is from the man who said that among his list of clients were 20 of the men killed during the gangland war in the 60s. Who were they, choir boys? The man was cheating on his wife with a mob mall. Her husband had robbed banks with Whitey Bulger, and she informed on him to the feds. She went on the run with Louis Aquila and Frank Martin Feeney and then gave them up. She turned in Spike and Georgie McLaughlin because Spike was sleeping with someone else. She was sleeping with Barboza, too, along the way, while all, all the while informing Tarico. <laughs> Hey, but don't worry about any of that. They made Fitzgerald the judge. That makes it all better. Okay, back to the appeal. Brower felt that he could have had the conviction overturned on the basis that Bailey had a conflict of interest by acting as Frankie's attorney during the trial. He claimed that the conversation between Fitzgerald and Bailey was covered by attorney-client privilege, and that disqualified him to serve as Frankie's counsel. In November of 78, Frankie's conviction was upheld in federal appeals court. Frankie's argument was that he had been convicted on the basis of guilt by association since Fitzgerald had mentioned the names of Raymond Patriarca and Jerry Angelo in his testimony. In January of 79, he lost a bid for his bid for a second trial. Two years later, his third appeal was also denied. In April of 1982, he was charged with escaping while working in a hospital. Evidently, the COs would allow him to slip away and then return back before anyone had noticed. Frankie had been receiving regular furloughs since his conviction, but always returned. But it wouldn't be long before Frankie was home. Next week, we're going to be looking at the hit parade from 1970 to 1973. And you will have plenty of time to complain about Johnny Moderano. <laughs> Indeed, I will. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.